0: My name is Ryan. I'm associate pastor here. Grant Call, our senior pastor, is taking a much uh, needed restful summer uh, break this morning, and so it is uh, my privilege. I'm going to invite him up here in a minute to introduce to you Stuart Sanders. Stuart is uh, he is the senior pastor at Tomball Bible Church uh, there in the Houston area. He received his bachelor's from the Great University, Texas A&M University. And then also, there we go, and then a master's degree um, from Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. You know, Stuart came to Fellowship, I think um, his dad told me, when he was a sophomore. And he can tell you a little bit more about that initial experience. But uh, as a high school student, he grew up here. Um, He is the son to Shane and Janet Sanders, long-time members here at Fellowship Bible Church, Uh, Stuart's wife's name is Anna. They have three children, Mallory, five, Shane, two, and Daphne, five months. So I think you're in for a treat. Let's give Stuart a warm welcome this morning. Stuart, you can join us up here. Thank you.
1: Well, good morning. It's exciting to get to be here. Things have changed since I was here last. Like, for instance, there's more technology in this room. Uh, a lot because when, when I was here, what was holding those curtains back was a pool noodle folded in half and just jammed in those crevices. So we've come a long way around here. It looks nice, it looks, it looks really good. Well, why don't we go ahead and pray, bow our heads, and then we're going to get into our text this morning. Father in heaven, we are grateful for the chance to gather. We are grateful for the word you've given to us that we are not stumbling in the darkness, we are not wondering. As to who you are and what you have said and what you require of us, you have spoken in your word. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear the truth of this word this morning and let us not go here from here as deluded hearers but effectual doers. Let us go forth with the good news of Jesus Christ offered freely to us based upon his merit alone, boldly to a lost and dying world. We ask you to bless our time this morning as we gather around your word in Christ's name. We pray, amen. Well, Grant told me that you guys are in 2 Timothy and have been working steadily through the book of 2 Timothy, and you took off at 2 Timothy 3, 14, and 15, and what I'm going to do this morning is take a tangent off of that. So it's going to be in the same kind of vein as 2 Timothy 3, 14, and 15, but we're going to be in Jude 3 and 4, just two verses in Jude this morning. So Timothy, those verses from 2 Timothy 3... Paul's saying that he sat under biblical teaching from his youth up and he doesn't need to abandon it, but he needs to hold fast to it. And we're going to be along those lines this morning. Paul's admonishing Timothy to continue in the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, to continue in biblical teaching and not forsake the foundational truth because the truth of the Bible has been and will be questioned and brought under fire in every day that will ever tarry here on this earth. And if you aren't teaching the Bible in your homes, and if your church isn't teaching the Bible in its pulpit, then you stand exposed to a cacophony of lies just waiting to pierce your heart. So we're going to look at our fidelity to the scriptures this morning in Jude 3 and 4. Jude 3 and 4 are the theme verses of that short little epistle of Jude. They're the theme, that's what the whole book is about and pointing towards. And it's essentially speaking about threats to the truth, threats to the truth of God's word and external threats and internal threats are things that we deal with external threats being physical towards us. Right. And those are always temporary because the worst thing they can do, according to Jesus and Matthew is kill you and then send you home. So external threats have their limitations and throughout history, persecution brings growth of the church. But you see that in history, we can see that now. In China, communist China, which is closed off to the gospel, hostile to the gospel, it's expected that China that China will be the most Christian nation by the year twenty thirty, meaning it has the greatest populations of self-proclaimed Protestant evangelicals. In more than America. In two thousand ten, there were one hundred and fifty-nine million Protestants in America. But by 2025, there's projected to be 160 million in China. So persecution against the truth tends to, historically, just grow the church. External persecution. But internal threats, those can be deadly. Internal threats can kill us. If you just case in point, if you read your Bible, the very next book after Jude is Revelation and then Jude or in Revelation 2 and 3, there's letters to seven churches and five of them have come under the judgment of Jesus. Five of them have wandered from the truth. Their own doctrinal laxity has become their undoing. Only two of them are still walking on. We see that in our own, in our own Bibles, the examples of that. So when the truth is physically persecuted, all it seems to do is validate it as the truth. When Christians suffer as Christians... It just grows the church with the witness and the testimony of believers pointing towards Christ. It just grows it. Where the truth is compromised and denied from within, the truth disappears completely and the people perish. So we are going to look at that fight in Jude. And this is not not a, a, a metaphysical idea. You can put numbers on this. A Canadian university, two Canadian universities actually, did a study of this in North American churches that were declining and the ones that were growing. And it looked at those two, two factions and saw what was the commonalities between them. So in the churches that were growing, they all had pastors who affirmed the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. 93% of them, the churches that were growing, affirmed that biblical truth. But of the churches that were dying... Only 56% of their pastors affirmed the bodily resurrection of Jesus. And then this next stat is the most telling of all. In churches that were growing, when they polled them, all of their pa- 71% of their pastors said they'd read their Bibles every day and studied every day. Of the churches that were dying, only 19% of them read their Bibles every single day. So there is something too, even numerically, a dogged adherence to the supremacy of God's word and not forsaking the sacred scriptures that God blesses and that God grows. So let's look at Jude together. In Jude verse three, he says, beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And you notice at the beginning of that verse, he says, this is what I wanted to do. I wanted to talk about our common salvation, but something changed. He, wanted, he had an original intent in writing this letter. This letter was going to be upbeat and it was going to be happy. And it was going to be about things we all like. We all like talking and fellowshipping around the finished work of Christ on the cross. That if we believe in him, that we are saved from our own sins, not based on our works, but based on his His passive and active obedience and his perfect righteousness. We love fellowshipping around that. That's awesome. And we should love to do that as Christians. That's part of what we do when we gather. That's part of what makes everybody on the same page. Because you got PhDs and you got dropouts and they're all like, hey, we were both sinful idiots. And then we got saved. We all fellowship around the same common salvation. And that's a good thing to do. Studying our justification bonds us as a church, and peering deeply into the majesty of God just deepens and fills out our worship. And that's a good thing to do. And Jude said he was going to do that. And that's how most New Testament epistles begin just celebrating the salvation that we all share. That's how most of them begin. But then he says something happened and a changed course. Something happened to change his course and you can see in verse 3 it sounds more like a sermon and less like a letter In sermon you have a little bit more freedom to waste some words to say well i wanted to do this but now i'm going to do this instead but in a letter why would you write that out unless it was extremely significant i was going to write about our common salvation but i felt the need to change that the holy spirit was leading him in a direction change he intentionally includes the redirection of his letter We can only assume the Holy Spirit led him to do that. The gleeful tone that he intended was made more somber by the Holy Spirit. So there's a change there, and we can't let that be lost on us. Peculiarities in the Bible should raise our ears to know why. That's significant. Why even add that detail? Because nothing is superfluous in Scripture. And we know that it's exceedingly joyful to speak in fellowship and worship the same Jesus with a common salvation that we all have. We know that that is exceedingly joyful and we should never forsake that practice. But Jude is making the point that there is a time when we are called to arms. That there is a time to fight. Ecclesiastes 3.1 talks about the time that we have for everything. For everything there is a season and for every time, every matter under heaven that Jude knows that he and his audience would have no commonality of salvation if somebody somewhere hadn't contended for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. So somebody has to stand for the truth, and the call to stand firm is a lot less fun. But we'd be naive to think that that's never necessary, that that never needs to happen. And Jude followed the lead of the Spirit of God and changed the direction of his epistle, and God used it. And do you see in verse 3, he says, I found it necessary. He found it necessary to do that. The Jew felt burdened to urge them to contend. That contending for the faith isn't just something that we do as Christians to round us out as a a people. They're like, oh yeah, we have VBS and we have kids and we have coffee and we have senior ministries and we contend for the faith. We do everything. We got all. No, you contend for the faith so that all of those other things matter at all. That have any substance at all, that have any gospel at all. Though it's not just an add on, it's not just important, it is necessary. So, Jesus says, I felt it necessary. It's vital for us to do, it is not optional for us to do. To do what? To contend for the faith. That word contend in Greek is epagonizomai. So, epi means for, and agonizomai means agonize, strain, Reach, fight, contend. It's it's used in athletics often. When somebody's running, when a sprinter is running, he has no sidetrack. He's not throwing muscles in any other direction but dead ahead at that finish line. He's not kind of leaving his arm over here just for something else. He's every fiber, every nerve of his body is straining towards one goal. That's the imagery here. That's what contend means. That's why in the NASB it says contend earnestly. This contention is earnest. There's a fervor with it. This is not... Friends, this is not a call to a light jog around the indoor track. But this is a call to arms, to full tilt exertion for the truth. Because the truth is on the line. And Jude's exhorting his audience to contend, and that's no different than what Paul has done with Timothy. You guys have, you guys have been in 2 Timothy, and in, in chapter 1, verse 13 to 14, Paul says to Timothy, follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me. Follow what you've heard. Don't stray. In the faith and in love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Guarding entails conflict. Because if nothing, if nobody's coming after the thing that you have, then you don't have to guard it. So he's, guard, he's been urging Timothy to do that. And the same is true in Jude. And the same is true for believers since the Garden of Eden. We've always been battling for the purity of the gospel. For the rightly dividing of the word of truth that happens in our daily lives, in our homes, in our office lunchrooms, and certainly within our churches, certainly within our churches, because we're contending for the faith. What is this faith? The faith once for all delivered to the saints. Christianity is founded on the Bible. And that sounds like low hanging fruit. Of course, a preacher's going to say that. But that's contended in different places, that's argued in different places. We, we necessarily have a Bible, a known and revealed, received body of truth. That's what we have. That's what the church is founded on. And it's about Jesus and how salvation is through him alone. The Bible is the basis for how we think and how we act. We don't know how to act and we don't know how to think without a Bible. And we have a Bible. We've been given A Bible, and that may sound obvious, but that is a point of controversy in many institutions that call themselves Christians, from schools, colleges, seminaries, and churches. That's contended, that's arguable, that's debatable. It's a point of controversy. We've heard this phrase so often. Well, it's not a religion, it's a relationship. We've heard that before a lot, right? I get the heart behind that, right? It's not like a set of rules. The heart behind that is good, but much violence has been done to the truth of the bible under that banner because it's about my experience it's about how i relate to god and i determine the statuses and the levels of my relationships not some revealed closed body of truth much damage has been done to the truth under that banner there was a guy back 100 years ago named, named Gresham Machen. And he was contending for the faith in the New Jersey and Pennsylvania area well, within Westminster Seminary and Princeton Seminary. And they had jumped the shark, or, or uh, Princeton had. And they, uh, they, so Christian liberalism had crept in and was teaching that it's not about having a, a literal Jesus. They kind of over spiritualized Christianity. It's not important that somebody named Jesus. He was from Nazareth, was actually born, and actually died, and actually rose again eternally, that he was actually fully God and fully man. None of that matters. What matters is Matthew 5, 6, and 7. The Sermon on the Mount is good stuff. Even Gandhi likes that. So they're, they're saying that the, the, the historicity of the Bible, the veracity, the truth of the Bible, that doesn't matter. It just matters how you relate to it. What's your personal experience with this example of Jesus, He's an example. He is not a substitute for your sin. You don't need one. You need an example. So he's waging that war for the truth, for the historical Jesus. And this is what he said. He said, but if any one fact is clear, and on the basis of this evidence, it is that the Christian movement at its inception was not just a way of life in the modern sense, but a way of life founded upon a message, meaning we don't get to determine. It's founded upon a message that's delivered to us. It was based not upon mere feeling, not upon a mere program of work, but upon an account of facts. In other words, it was based upon doctrine. And we get too far. The pendulum goes too far sometimes. It's all feeling or it's all facts. And we have feelings Based on the truth of those facts. That Jesus was born and he did die and he did rise again. And my belief in him secures heaven. See, the only way to keep our churches preserved as the pure bride of Christ is to root them in the historical truth of the Bible. That's the only way. The only way way to prevent our faith from devolving into mere sentimentality is to ground it into something that is authoritative, that is truthful, and that is flawless. And you hold it in your hands right now. That's a Bible, and Satan hates it. But we have nothing if we don't have a Bible. The faith was delivered to the saints. It was not authored by the saints. It was not decided upon by the saints, and it was not conjured up by the saints. It was delivered to them. That word delivered in Greek is paradidomai It means literally to hand over. It means an object from one party is handed to another party. It's just shifting over. It's being handed, not conjured, not agreed, not asked for. Handed, delivered over to the saints. And that's, the Bible affirms that fact itself. In 2 Peter 1 20 through 21 says knowing this first of all that no prophecy of scripture come from someone's own interpretation what's funny the greek word no means no it means no none nothing so no prophecy is somebody's own opinion the verse goes on for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man but men spoke from god as they were carried along by the holy spirit the bible has one author used over 40 catalysts but one author god has authored it and it was delivered to us and it was delivered once for all the bible is not software that needs to be updated you're like oh i got the old version i need to update it to where it fits and runs on a new set of surroundings that's not true once revelation 22 21 was written it's over it's closed 66 books In its fullness, that's what God intended for his people. That's what God delivered to his people, the saints. We got a closed canon to the treachery of theological liberalism is that, is this idea that, well, that thing in the Bible meant what you think it means for those people in that day. When you read the Bible plainly, And it sounds like that, that's what it meant for them, but it doesn't mean that for us. We live in a different day, in a different era. The Bible's old and dusty. But if that's true, then Jude 3 is not true. Because it says it was delivered once for all. Not once for some, or once for them, or delivered once and needs to be updated. That scripture is somehow negotiable. You know, it means once for all, that 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 assumption that it meant that for them and not that for us. That's essentially saying that well, in time and history, people were like that, but since then we've become more educated, we're more sophisticated, we're more evolved, and so now we can then put ourselves over top of the Bible and decide what is true and what is not, and what fits and what doesn't fit. We get to be the sovereign, not God, not Scripture. No, the Christian faith has been delivered once for all. It's not an album that we pick and choose the songs we like and then don't listen to the rest. It's an authoritative body of truth in its wholeness. And for what reason does this faith need to be contended for? Verse 4 gives us that. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ it needs to be contended for because wolves have crept in amongst the flock just like Paul told the Ephesian elders they would do in Acts chapter 20 just as Peter warned they would come in 1st and 2nd Peter just as Jesus warned in Matthew 7 that they're coming Jews says they are here so your last book before Revelation and the flow of Scripture, the last book before the book where things haven't happened yet, is they are here now. They're, they're right here. Jude says they're here now. And you know what? They didn't kick down the front door waving a rainbow flag and shouting, long live Roe v. Wade. That's, that's not how they got in. They crept in unnoticed. We let them in Because we didn't know our Bibles, and we didn't have the spines to stand up for the truth. Let me tell you a story about a church. This church was founded in 1862, Washington, D.C. So, right in there. And let me just read you some of their beliefs. I pulled it right off the website. These are some of their beliefs, some of their tenets about their church. It says, one of them, the first one is the priesthood of all believers, that sounds good. Christians have an individual and direct relationship with God that is not brokered by an institution or a member of the clergy. I'm good with that. Holy Scripture. This is what they believe about the Bible. A high regard for Holy Scripture. Its prominent and responsible interpretation is important to us. You will soon experience this by our weekly reading of four passages from the Bible in worship and our pastor's regular insistence that we get into the Bible and grapple with what it has to say. I'm all for that. I probably said that exact phrase before in my church. Second, or the, the last little tenet is the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Who we are is defined by our affirmation of the Lordship of Jesus Christ, which is kind of an old-fashioned way of saying we are followers of Jesus and that we nurture our community and try our best with the help of God's ongoing presence and leadership to live the two greatest commandments Jesus taught us. You shall love your neighbor as yourself and love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Now, those things sound really good. And if you read the website, I'm like, man, that sounds awesome. That's, that's Calvary Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. And in February of this year, they called two co-pastors who were married lesbians. And that was on their website, to grapple with the hard things in Scripture. That, this is happening now. This happened this year. Let me tell you another story. Glasgow, Scotland, there's an Episcopalian church there. Glasgow, Scotland. Scotland has a rich history of, uh, of theological fidelity, of holding to the truths of the Scripture because of the Scotland, of the, uh, the coven tears in Scotland. But this is an Episcopalian church, and on January 6th of this year, they had a Muslim get up and read from the Quran during a worship service because they wanted to show their inclusivity of those who are Muslims. What makes it even worse is that the passage that he read was from the book of surah chapter 19 in the quran and that passage is specifically and expressly states the fact that they believe that jesus is not god's son and that christians are not believers and will suffer the wrath of allah that was read in a christian church this year This is happening. They let them in. And so my point in bringing those stories up is not for us to bemoan the godlessness of Western civilization or for us to turn up our noses in haughty derision of like, oh, we would never be like those poor plebeians over there. No, my reason for bringing those up is to ask the question, how did they get there? Did they wake up one day and said, I want to punt its scripture in its entirety. Let's call married lesbians to be pastors. Or, I want to punt the exclusivity of Jesus Christ as the way, the truth, and the life. So let's have a Muslim come in and read that Jesus is not the way, the truth, or the life. And Christians are all condemned. Did they just decide that one day? How did it happen? It happened slowly over time when people crept in unnoticed. And members and leaders and the church were unwilling to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. They are creeping in. They are not kicking down doors. So when a church gets here, we don't need to just mock and, and point fingers. We need to go, how did that happen in, in Virginia in 1862 when that church was founded? And certainly it certainly didn't start like that. We need to ask that. How did they get there? But, and Jude says, the truth is about those who are creeping in, they are unbelievers. You see that in verse 4? who were long ago designated for this condemnation that does not describe a wayward Christian wayward Christians were not appointed for condemnation surely we have James 3 1 in our Bibles that said let not many of you become teachers my brethren knowing that as such you will incur a stricter judgment we know that Christians who can teach can get up and teach wrongly that can happen you know that Christians can go wayward, but we need not suffer people like this as merely wayward Christians because they show up on Sunday mornings or they show up for small groups during the week. He sees these people and he calls them condemned, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. We are not being self-righteously judgmental to evaluate the carnality of people as what it is. That's actually the most loving thing you can do because then you can call them to faith instead of just saying, well, I will hope you figure it out or I'll just keep praying that you start acting better. No, well, we know that actions are the best images of our thoughts and beliefs. So when you call a spade a spade, First Corinthians 6, Galatians 5, Paul wrote both of those and he lists out a long list of actions of for covering everything from being a liar to a slanderer to a swindler to a drunkard to uh, an immoral person to homosexual people and says such as these will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. He calls actions to bear. And what does Jesus say in Matthew 7? How are you going to know false teachers? How are you going to know these people? You will know them by their fruits. So we aren't taking any position that Jesus and Paul don't take to evaluate that. Now, we take a position that they don't take when we don't witness, but we call a spade a spade, and we call a lie a lie, and we must do that, because what are they doing? Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. If you have an NASB, it might say licentiousness, into licentiousness and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. These apostates, these people who are like this, who are creeping into the church, have two indicators. Two indicators. That they are going to change the grace of God into something that it is not. They're going to turn the grace of God into a license for sin. And the second thing they're going to do is they're going to redefine the biblical Jesus as to who he is and what he does. They're going to deny the Master and Lord Jesus Christ. And if you follow the logic of this, that they warp the truth in this ways because they're not believers. A non-believer comes into a church feigning Christianity... And they want to sin because they are slaves to sin. Because we've read Romans 6 and we know that to be true. But they also know that the Christian morality, the Christian worldview, doesn't allow for that. So how are we going to get around that? Well, you're going to have to redefine what sin is. And you're going to have to redefine what God's grace does. And then after you do that, then you have to redefine who Jesus is and what Jesus does, and get subtle with it, to make it somehow fit or sound like Scripture. So what they need is they need an ever-expanding list of things that are not sins, and they need a Jesus who will not judge. But the Bible knows nothing of that list, nor nothing of that Jesus. Scripture says that God's grace does not lead us away from Christ's lordship. Second Timothy four one, you're gonna get there when Grant comes back, probably. Says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. That's what Paul says, that's who Jesus is. He's gonna do that. Peter says the same thing in first Peter chapter four, one through five. He says, Since therefore Jesus or since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Not redefined sin and done it a lot. Verse two So as they as to live for the rest of time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, no longer for licentiousness and sensuality, but for what? But for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. They want to do it, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry with respect to this. They are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. You become the bad guys because you don't join in. Because you hold the line of defending the faith once for all delivered to the saints. That you are now the bigot. You are now the closed minded. And doctrine divides. Why would you hold to that? But in verse five, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. That is the biblical Jesus. This is the biblical faith that we are to contend for. And it's not to say then that we repudiate everybody who's not like us. All Christians who are different than us. Because the other pastor wears robes, or he wears frayed jeans, or or they dress like this at church, or they lift their hands up, or they have this weird liturgy, and they don't, they pass a plate, we pass a bag, like we're gonna be, you know, we can't have fellowship with you. Paul's not saying that, or Jude's not saying that. Paul says in Philippians one fifteen through eighteen, he gets a report he's in prison of other people preaching the gospel to spite him. Paul must have been a bad guy. God judged him. He's in jail now, and when he hears that, he says more power to them because they have the true gospel. So I don't care if they're mad at me. I don't care if they have evil intentions towards me. They have the true gospel that Jesus lived a perfect life, substitutionary, atoned for us and our sins. Belief in him leads to eternal life. So great, they can go on. He says he can even rejoice in that. These people who are different, maybe a little bit antagonistic, he can rejoice in that because they have the true gospel. But what Paul can't Tolerate Galatians 1, 6 through 9, is when you change the Word of God. When you redefine what the gospel is. In verse 6, Galatians 1, he says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached you, let him be accursed. And it gets even more blunt in verse nine. As we have said before. So now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. He is very serious when you warp The gospel. Even if you have good intentions and your social good is just streaming out through everything. And accursed doesn't mean let God put him in a corner. It doesn't mean let him be sad. It doesn't mean let him get spanked from the divine. It means anathema, it means condemned for eternity. To anathematize something is to condemn it to hell. That's what Paul says about people who twist the true gospel. He's fine if you have bad motives with the real gospel, but if you have good motives with the wrong gospel, he says, let them be accursed. He's serious about this. In our day and age, you know what's sad is that most people in most places who call themselves believers would say the difference between the response in Philippians 1 and the response in Galatians 1 is just one of theological subtlety. Let's not divide over that. Let's, just not, let's, let's be together if we can. Let's just unite. Let's not, let's not fight over that. Now, I'm all for unity. We all must be for unity because we have the book of Philippians in our Bible and Ephesians in our Bible that says we have one God and one gospel and one baptism. We have one, but I will not unify at the sake of the truth. Because then I'm a liar. Gresham Machen said on the same day, according or referencing this same difference between Galatians 1 and Philippians 1, it said it never occurred to Paul that a gospel might be true for one man and not for another. The blight of pragmatism had never fallen upon his soul. Paul was convinced of the objective truth of the gospel message and devotion to that truth was the great passion of his life. That's a hard word from Jude 3 and 4. It would have been easy to come in here and just tell a bunch of jokes like, I used to be a kid and play basketball in here. But this fit with where you guys were at 2 Timothy. And it's a hard word to hear. And it's a hard word to do. And it will not make us famous, but it is what Jesus will use to grow his church. And I want to leave you with this word because Grant's not here and he can't tell me to stop. Uh... I want to brag on him, because if he had heard at first service, he would definitely not have let me do it second service. He'd have ran up here and started praying. But he's not here, so I'm going to brag on him. We came to Waco in 2001, and I was in high school, and we were meeting at the movie theater. And I was like, "Sweet, church in the movie theater. This is awesome. I'm just going to stay here and hide the back. And when Spider-Man 3 comes on, I'm just going to get in there and eat, watch it for free. I thought it was really cool." And, and uh, but when we moved here, we, our plan was, at least what, what mom and dad told us, where we were going to look around at lots of different churches. And we went to fellowship first, based on a recommendation. We went there first and heard Grant preach, and I, we went to the youth group and went all, all those things. And my dad was like, all right, where do you guys think you want to go next? And we said, nowhere. He was like, really? Like, I was kind of feeling the same thing. So then he goes, and uh, a few weeks later, he takes Grant out to lunch. And he comes back and he's telling my mom about his lunch with Grant. And this was 16 years ago. So for Grant, that was a while ago. And uh, I remember I wasn't really listening. I was paying attention. I was in the other room, but I was kind of like a 15 year old idiot does. Like my dad's talking. I'm probably not going to listen. But I heard this thing. He was talking to my mom. I said, she was like, How was lunch with the pastor? And he's like, Well, the pastor, he's, he's young and he's new to Texas. I think Grant's still a little new to Texas. Uh, at times. Um, he said he's, he's young and he's new to Texas, But and then his voice changed, his demeanor changed. I could just hear him say it differently. He said, man, that guy knows a word. And you know how many people I've ever heard my dad say that about before or since? Zero. I have never heard him say that in that way about anybody else. And that was Grant Call 16 years ago. You guys have a pastor who has contended and will contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Unwaveringly, he has done that and continued to do that. You have this. You know how much of a blessing that is? I live in a a zip code right now in northwest Houston where I have other churches who have had acrobats in the service. They string a tightrope from the back to the front And then the next week they had a motocross show on stage. That's what I'm dealing with in the Houston area. And you don't have that here at Fellowship Bible Church in Waco, Texas. You have someone who faithfully, day in and day out, gets in the pulpit and preaches the word once for all delivered to the saints. You have that without fail for 16 years. Put up with a lot of stuff. He came to a church that was meeting in a movie theater. Why would you do that? They didn't have a building. So I want to just make sure that we all know what we have. We praise God for a pastor like that, who's obedient to Scripture, who's obedient to 1 Timothy 4.16. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. Grant has persisted in that. He's convinced of the veracity of Scripture and he leads convictionally to those ends. Every church I've ever been at says, we're all about the Bible and we love the Bible and we teach the Bible. And then you go there and there is no Bible. He reads a verse and then runs away from it as fast as he can. I was talking to two pastors these past two weeks in my area in Houston, or no, no, and just in the state of Texas. And they both, both these guys said, we had people from our congregation come to us and say, you're using too much Bible in churches, in Texas, the Bible Belt hey, you're using too much Bible, and I was like, oh man you're doing something right that's, a that's never been a problem here as long as I've known Fellowship Bible Church, there's never been that problem so praise God for moms and dads who faithfully pursue contending for the faith in their homes, that's what you do And praise God for a pastor and pastors and staff at a church like this that do so as well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for telling us to contend for the faith that you didn't say life was going to be roses. And as soon as we stepped into this thing, that everything was going to be perfect and all of our enemies were going to go away. And thank you for telling us that we even have to keep our eyes open within the gathering of your people. And thank you for equipping us to do so with your spirit that we labor and strive according to your power which works mightily within us not according to our own skills, abilities and strengths. And we thank you that we can praise you for leadership like Grant. We thank you that we can do that and we know that we are not worshiping a man but what a God-man has done in that man and that Your Bible has convinced him of and what you have seen fit to do in a life of one to affect so many in one little corner of your world here in Waco. So Father, we thank you for this time and for this gathering. We thank you for these people. Help us to go forth to contend earnestly for the faith with the gospel ever ready on our lips for a lost and dying world. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.